Hello friends, welcome back. James Corbett here, CorbettReport.com. In December of 2022, with another edition of the flashback series of the Corbett Report, in which we dip into the archives for material that is as relevant today as the date that it was created. Today we dip way back to September 26th of 2010, when I released episode 148 of the Corbett Report podcast on Media Kills. And as you'll see, obviously this is swirling around the old the age-old topic of media and the way that it is used to influence the public and its perceptions, an obviously extremely important point that I have made in various material that I've made over the years, but this sources from 2010, and of course it is one of those old audio-only podcasts that Brock West, video editor extraordinaire, has just recently done up the visuals, uh, so you can now watch this old podcast. But if you are interested in hearing listening to or watching any of the old material from 2010, why not pick up a Corbett Report 2010 Data Archive USB? Yes, a thumb drive with every single podcast episode, every video, every interview, every article from the year 2010, available in one handy-dandy portable format, a physical uh, device here that you can plug into your computer and download all the material, spread it to the four winds, that's what it's for. Of course, as always, I'd like to stress all of this information, including this podcast you're going to hear today, is available for free download from the Corbett Report website. But if you would like to support the Corbett Report and have all of that information in one handy-dandy USB, you can order it from newworldnextweek.com. And the other proviso I always make, this video was created in 2022, so the video will not be on the 2010 archive, but the audio of this podcast is. Without further ado, enjoy the podcast. You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome to episode 150 of The Corbett Report, Media Kills. And if you are one of the people who are listening to my voice right now, chances are that you are one of the people who have turned away from the establishment media as your one and only source of information and have decided to find information through alternative media outlets. And I'm sure that many of my listeners are not disappointed for having made that decision. In fact, that's a decision that I myself made just a few short years ago before I started the Corbett Report, when I discovered the extent to which the corporate media and the foundation-funded media was lying to me, and to everyone, really. And it can be quite overwhelming when one encounters the extent and the scope of the lie that we've been fed all our lives for the first time. It can feel a little bit like Neo being jacked out of the Matrix and discovering that he's in the pod. But perhaps there comes a point after being immersed in the alternative media for a number of years that we begin to forget the ironclad grip that the establishment media has on the minds of most of the general public. It can be good from time to time to remind ourselves of the scale, the scope, and the extent of the lies that the corporate media expounds on a daily basis, and the very real effect that those lies have on human lives around the world. The lies themselves are so bald-faced, so ridiculous, so completely 180 degrees from everything that's true and real, that it would almost be funny if we could be detached observers of this. But given the fact that 
Today's title is very apt, and it is very true that media does kill and does result in the deaths of millions upon millions of people. It is no laughing matter. So let's start today by just collecting a few of the most egregious examples of disgusting, bald-faced lies that result in misery, tragedy, and yes, death. Here's tonight's medical headlines with medical watch reporter Seema Mather. Mercury-containing vaccines may help not harm kids, according to two new studies in the journal Pediatrics. There have been widespread concerns that mercury-based preservatives and vaccines might impair the neurological development of children. These new studies suggest that the opposite, that the preservatives may actually be associated with improved behavior and mental performance. About inflation, that's another interesting point because a lot of people like to say uh, scaremonger about China, right? A lot of politicians, and I know you talk about that issue all the time. I think people should be careful what they wish for on China. You know, if China were to revalue its currency or China is to start making, say, toys that don't have lead in them or food that isn't poisonous, their costs of production are going to go up. And that means prices at Walmart here in the United States are going to go up too. So I would say China is our greatest friend right now. They're keeping prices low and they're keeping prices for mortgages low too. Let me ask you an honest question. Are you going to do a sit-down interview with Bob McElveen? I don't know. So that's a no. I would urge you to do that. See, that's the thing. You're here to interview us, but you're not here to interview a family member. Why is that? Why is that? I'm curious. I told you I don't know. You don't know. You're the producer, aren't you? No, I'm the reporter. You're the reporter? Well, why can't you at least sit down with Bob McElveen and interview him just for the hell of it? I would urge you to. I, I, I mean, we, this has been a very emotional actually, interview. Because you've actually been here. You've had an opportunity to speak to all these people that could actually talk to you about the loved ones they lost, the actual pain and grief that they've had to go through, and instead you're sitting here interviewing us. So why is that? Why is it easier to interview us than the actual people who are affected by 9-11? Because you don't want to interview them. No, no, I don't you're think so. Because you're not doing your job. You are not doing your job. It's plain and simple. Thank you. Nice interview. Nice to meet you. A new report out from the Southern Poverty Law Center shows that right-wing militias, ideologically driven tax defiers, and so-called sovereign citizens are materializing in significant numbers. One federal agent noting, you see people buying into what they're saying. It's primed to grow. Joining us now, Mark Kotok, the director of the Intelligence Project for the Southern, uh, Southern Poverty Law Center. Always speak before. Barack Obama, <laughs> not after Barack Obama. I have to tell you, you know, it's it's part of reporting this case of uh, uh, this election. The feeling most people get when they hear a Barack Obama speech, my, I felt this thrill right. going up my leg. I well, mean, I don't have that too often. Steady. No, seriously. He calls himself Abu Muhammad. It's not his real name. He still fears the long arm of Saddam Hussein's military. Although Al Hadiri's claims would be widely circulated, the man himself was not made available to the media in general. His story was given to just two outlets, hand-picked by the American-backed exiled Iraqi opposition movement, the Iraqi National Congress, or INC. The print story was given to New York Times reporter Judith Miller, She's now being criticized after revelations that most of her stories about Iraq's weapons of mass destruction, a topic upon which she built a reputation as a specialist, came from one source, the leader of the INC, Ahmed Chalabi. The chosen television outlet was ABC TV in Australia through freelance cameraman and journalist Paul Moran. 
Moran was later killed in Iraq while working for the ABC. The Australian Navy is pushing closer to the Iraq. Now it has been revealed that Moran worked extensively for the INC and with a company working for American intelligence and the Pentagon, employed to spread anti-Saddam propaganda. And Al-Hadiri's story certainly hit that mark. After his debut on ABC TV and in the New York Times, Al-Hadiri went into hiding, reportedly given protection by the CIA. His claims were reprinted and broadcast by dozens of other media outlets throughout the world, greatly influencing both public and government opinion. But coalition forces have yet to find any sign of the numerous facilities detailed by Adnan Al-Hadiri. And on and on and on and on ad infinitum. And I'm sure that my listeners don't need to be told that there are many, many, many more examples, many of which we've covered on past episodes of this podcast, and I'm sure many more that we will cover in the future, because there is really never an end to the establishment media lies, since the establishment media's sole purpose is to maintain the status quo for the benefit of the ruling oligarchy. This is a particularly well-understood and by now relatively uncontroversial understanding of what's going on in the media. In fact, it is so uncontroversial that it is even well-understood by Mr. Warren Commission and 9-11 Commissioner, okay by me himself, Noam Chomsky. From Washington, D.C., he's intellectual, author, and linguist, uh, Professor Noam Chomsky. Manufacturing Consent. What is that title meant to describe? Well, the title is actually borrowed from uh, a book by Walter Lippmann, written back uh, around 1921, in which he described what he called the manufacture of consent as a revolution in the practice of democracy. What it amounts to is a technique of control. Uh, and he said this was useful and necessary because uh, the common interests, the general concerns of all people, elude the public public just isn't up to dealing with them, and they have to be the domain of what he called a specialized class. Uh, notice that that's the opposite of the standard view about democracy. Uh, there's a version of this expressed by the uh, highly respected moralist and theologian Reinhold Niebuhr, uh, who was very influential on contemporary policymakers. Uh, his view was that rationality belongs to the cool observer. But because of the stupidity of the average man, he follows not reason but faith. And this naive faith requires necessary illusion and emotionally potent oversimplifications, which are provided by the mythmaker to keep the ordinary person on course. It's not the case, as the naive might think, that indoctrination is inconsistent with democracy. Rather, as this whole line of thinkers observes, it's the essence of democracy. The point is that in a military state or a feudal state or what we would nowadays call a totalitarian state, it doesn't much matter what people think because you've got a bludgeon over their head and you can control what they do. But when the state loses the bludgeon, when you can't control people by force, and when the voice of the people can be heard, you have this problem 
uh, it may make people so curious and so arrogant that they don't have the humility to submit to a civil rule, and therefore you have to control what people think. And the standard way to do this is the resort to what in more honest days used to be called propaganda, manufacture of consent, uh, creation of necessary illusions, various ways of either marginalizing the general public or reducing them to apathy in some fashion. And so we see that the manipulation of the media for the benefit of the ruling oligarchy and the detriment of any form of democratic society where people actually have a say over what's happening in their society is a very old and well-established history and goes back to people like Walter Lippmann and, of course, Edward Bernays, who we've looked at in previous episodes of this podcast. But to really begin exploring and understanding this problem in its current context, I'd like to turn today to an excellent new documentary that was released very recently called Psy War. Now, this documentary is available online, obviously, at Metanoia Films, and I'll include a link to that so that people can watch it in its entirety, which I highly suggest that they do. But suffice it to say that this is a documentary that explores the roots of modern media propaganda, and more significantly, the ties between the government and the media through the use of PR, public relations firms, which are very much in bed with the government and work through the media to get the government's message out. Now, this is best known as propaganda placement, but it takes many different forms. And as you may have noticed in the clip opening clips from today's episode, yes, there are indeed many, many, many examples of the media telling only the government's side, reporting on only the government's side of the story is a way of not necessarily lying to their viewers, but merely giving one side of the debate. Well, this is a very effective technique for limiting the debate to whatever you wish to limit to, and we've seen this technique used again and again throughout history. But right now, let's take a look at some specific techniques of how PR was used to sell and to further the Iraq war, and how the public relations industry was very much in bed with both the government and the media in making that happen. The head of the Rendon Group, John Rendon, denies that he is a national security strategist or a military tactician. Rather, he states, I am a politician and a person who uses communication to meet public policy or corporate policy objectives. In fact, I am an information warrior and a perception manager. Following the first Gulf War, Rendon was paid $23 million by the CIA to create anti-Saddam propaganda. Following 9-11, he was charged with public relations for the U.S. bombing of Afghanistan. Rendon is far from alone. Public relations has mushroomed into a $200 billion a year industry, with PR flags in the United States now outnumbering journalists. Propaganda has become the primary means by which the wealthy communicate with the rest of society. Whether selling a product, a political candidate, a law, or a war, seldom to the powerful deliver messages to the public before consulting their colleagues in the public relations industry. Colin Powell presents a now typical case. He didn't choose a seasoned diplomat for the position of Undersecretary of State. Instead, he chose Charlotte Beers, known in PR circles as the Queen of Madison Avenue. Her resume includes successful advertising campaigns for Head & Shoulders Dander Shampoo, 
Uncle Ben's rice. And now, Uncle Sam. You see a news show, you watch 60 Minutes or a Fox program or whatever it is, you tend to give more credibility to what you're told is journalism. If an advertisement comes on, hopefully you tend to be more skeptical of that because obviously somebody put an awful lot of money into crafting this slick TV ad and airing it. But what you probably never suspect is that that news story you just watched was also crafted by a company given to the TV station or network with the understanding that they would put their own logos on it, identify it as real journalism, and air it. Colonel Sam Gardner would eventually chart 50 false news stories created and leaked by the Bush White House propaganda apparatus prior to and during the assault on Iraq. Foremost amongst these were the lies that led to the war in the first place. It was not bad intelligence that led to the invasion, concludes Gardner. It was an orchestrated effort that began before the war and was meticulously planned to manipulate the public. In 2002, when uh, the Bush administration was conducting its uh, massive public relations campaign to sell the war, out of Donald Rumsfeld's office in the Pentagon, there was something now referred to as the Pentagon Pundits Program, where literally scores of former high-ranking military generals and admirals and colonels were getting their talking points for their appearances on TV news shows directly from the Pentagon. They would literally uh, go to the Pentagon, be on phone conferences with the Pentagon, travel with the Pentagon, and then go on TV as supposedly independent sources. Although most of them were actually being paid in the private sector because these are retired military officials by defense contractors, and many of them were actually registered lobbyists for military contractors. So there's a bit of a conflict of interest right away when your bread and butter is based on being able to sell armaments and bombs and missiles, and uh, you're supposed to be just a patriotic ex-general giving an honest opinion of what's going on. And even though that's illegal, there's no way to really stop it and the most powerful medium through which it occurred refuses to even report on the scandal you've got just a massive problem and that that's where we're at if anything i would say that media complicity in promoting government agendas has only increased since the time of the iraq war as difficult as that might be to believe at first glance it can only be the the inevitable conclusion of anyone who looks at the way that the media pimped the swine flu hoax to such an extent last year in the service of big pharma to help them sell billions of dollars of vaccines that not only were unnecessary but proved to be quite dangerous or in the way that the media has proven itself to be only too serviceable to the very same war whores who were promoting the Iraq war to let them promote the Iran war by spouting the same type of lies, misinformation, and propaganda about the great feared enemy as we did about Saddam. And I'm no fan of Saddam, and I'm no fan of Ahmadinejad, but I'm no fan of media lies that are used to sell wars that end up in the deaths of millions of people. Or we can look to the way that the media in all its forms is now desperately trying to contain the genuine grassroots political movement that is threatening all government incumbents and in fact the governmental structure in America itself. 
that was once the spontaneous and grassroots Tea Party movement, but is now being corrupted by the Republicans in the name of right-wing conservatism, which has allowed it to be spun back into the left-right paradigm from which it is now easily ridiculed by those on the controlled corporate left, like the John Stewart's and Stephen Colbert's of the world, who are staging their fake media phony psyop uh, rally to mock Glenn Beck's rally and, oh, by the way, make fun of 9-11 truth and people who question the legitimacy of Barack Obama as president of the U.S. Because it's all in the same boat and it's all laughable and anyone who questions the government, its legitimacy, or any of its actions is clearly so crazy that they must be mercilessly made fun of, right? And unfortunately, many people will go along with that because, as we've seen, people are willing to participate willingly in their own enslavement as long as it's fun and in the name of a good laugh. But once we've understood and fully internalized the extent to which the media is really nothing more or less than a mouthpiece for the oligarchs who are really in control of our phony political system and our staged geopolitical theater that passes for our global reality, the question inevitably becomes, what is the ultimate purpose of this and where is this media control heading? Surely we have not yet reached the ultimate peak or pinnacle of this media propaganda control over the public. So what will society look like once it has been completely and utterly subverted by the propagandists? Well, to answer that question, we're going to take a listen to Alan Watt on Cutting Through the Matrix on RBN, who in September of 2007 was reading from a French philosopher named Jacques Ilol. Jacques Ilol was born in 1912 and died in 1994. He was a French philosopher, a law professor, a lay theologian, and a sociologist, and he wrote books on the technological tyranny over humanity. He also had the foresight to understand that a key portion of that technological tyranny was the use of technology as a medium through which to propagandize to the people. In this clip, Alan Watt reads from his 1954 work, La Technique en le jeu du siècle, translated as The Technological Society in English in 1964. Now, talking about Jack C. Lowell and his book, one of his many books actually, The Technological Society, which eventually was published in English in about 1964, I think, about then. Now, he talks about the discipline of the techniques. And he's talking here about economics as well. He says the intellectual discipline of economics itself becomes technicized. Technical economic analysis is substituted for the older political economy, included in which was a major concern with the moral structure of economic activity. Thus, doctrine is converted into procedure. And that's very important because you have theories which become doctrine and then it, it gets put into procedure as fact. It's actually acted out, even though it's only theory. And a whole bunch of them go together. They swear allegiance, actually, to go towards this particular theory without ever explaining it really to the public what they're doing. So he, he talks about the technicians. They form a closed fraternity with their own esoteric vocabulary. And that's the same with all bureaucracies, by the way. Moreover, they're concerned only with what is as distinct from what ought to be. This is in the foreword of his book, so you can imagine what the rest of the book is like. He says, politics in turn becomes an arena for contention 
among rival techniques, the technician sees the nation quite differently from the political man. To the technician, the nation is nothing more than another sphere in which to apply the instruments he has developed. To him, the state is not the expression of the will of the people, nor a divine creation, nor a creature of class conflict. It is an enterprise, very important word, enterprise, in the high esoteric circles, providing services that must be made to function efficiently. And what he means by that is, they use terms like cost-cutting, etc., when it comes to health care or certain services you're taxed on, but what they really mean is they're going to reduce your service by cutting the costs. They can't give you the same services. They use a particular vocabulary which sounds pretty good to us. We like cost-cutting, but, but to the guys who introduce these techniques, they're meaning they're going to cut back your services. That's what it means. Either that, they'll tax you more for the same service. So the use of terminology is very, very important. He goes on to say he judges states in terms of their capacity to utilize techniques effectively, not in terms of their relative justice. Political doctrine revolves around what is useful rather than what is good. Purposes drop out of sight and efficiency becomes the central concern. As a political form best suited to the massive and unprincipled use of technique, dictatorship gains in power. Again, going back to Plato, he goes through the different uh, systems, republic, democracy, and so on. And when you hear them pushing democracy, as Plato said, they're actually aiming towards a form of dictatorship because all this has been done before, you see. It always ends up in dictatorship. Now, Alal goes on to say, and this in turn narrows the range of choice for the democracies Either they too use some version of effective technique, centralized control, and propaganda, or they will fall behind. Not understanding what the rule of technique is doing to him and to his world, modern man is beset by anxiety and a feeling of insecurity. He tries to adapt to changes he cannot comprehend. The conflict of propaganda takes the place of the debate of ideas. Technique smothers the ideas that put its rule in question and filters out for public discussion only those ideas that are substantial in accord with the values created by a technical civilization. Social criticism is negated because there is only slight access to the technical means required to reach large, reach large numbers of people. He's talking about the media here. It's all to do with the media. Control the whole media and you control the minds of the people by using technique and repetitive slogans and little catchphrases like downsizing, upsizing, cost-cutting, etc., etc., which the people then part themselves, but it really doesn't mean much at all to the average Joe. Propagandistic manipulations take place under all forms of government and in all walks of life. It may be said that we live in a universe which is psychologically subversive, even so, modern man has no clear conception of the extent of the phenomenon. Experience cannot reveal it to him. He would have to be outside looking in. We in France are fortunate in living in a country where propaganda is still remarkably inefficient. In addition, we are acquainted with the technique of social psychoanalysis as reported by the pre-1938 Berlin Institute of Applied Psychology and by numerous American institutes and research committees. It is scarcely necessary to add that all propaganda technicians 
in search of the one best way, loudly proclaim the value of exploiting the great subconscious motives I have described. As I say, this book is a really must for those who are really trying to find out how their lives have been run for them, how the school system, uh, how the indoctrination went through the schooling and then was carried uh, over into the regular media right up to your, your mainstream news. This was talked about, too, by a guy who was an Archbishop of Canterbury back in the 40s and 50s and 60s. They called him the Red Bishop because he, he, people thought he was communistic in his ideas, but he wasn't. And he kept using a phrase that was called continuing education on the general public. Now, for the general public who heard his statements and who did not attend his lectures, it sounds pretty good. Yeah, we'll take night school courses and upgrade, as we call it now, since we're all becoming computers. But no, what he meant was the media would constantly put out new terms and catchphrases and start to tell us what to do, how to keep fit, uh, what to eat, what to wear, what kind of weather. All of these things are world, again, run by experts. Same with Bertrand Russell. That's what he said would come in. He said eventually we'll bring in a society where the average person will be unable to do anything for themselves without the advice of an expert. And we've actually gone to that step. And that's rather scary. Yes, whereas once a society ruled by experts who tell us exactly how to think, how to act, how to talk, how to dress, and what to say in any given situation would have been conceived as a nightmare, it is unfortunately more and more our daily reality, as we see more and more conversations of those around us being merely the parrot-like echoes of whatever was on the 6 o'clock news last night. We have a society that is being trained not to think for itself, and in fact being starved of the fundamental building blocks of how to think for itself, and all in the service of the oligarchy, who will, of course, be happy to step in and tell us exactly how to think on any given issue. Record scratch! That's right, James Corbett here again from the future, which is the present which will be the past by the time you're watching this, a.k.a. 2022. Uh, isn't media such a wonderfully confusing thing? Yes, just wanted to say that if you continue playing out and listening to the rest of the audio of that podcast, again, available at CorbettReport.com or available on the 2010 USB data archive, you will see that I go on to make the point that essentially, fundamentally, the Corbett Report is media critique. That was that was why this website, this podcast, why I created it, why I do what I do. It was uh, a sense, a palpable sense of the lack of serious and critical coverage of these incredibly important issues in the media space. I felt I had to insert myself into that conversation, and this being the internet age, I did. So here we are in 2022. Again, I think you'll agree with me that that's a still remains some pretty important material. If you are interested in further exploring the issues surrounding the media and its influence on society and how it came to the position of prominence that it did and the technologies behind it and where it's taking us and all of these types of concerns, then of course you will be interested in the Media Matrix documentary that I released earlier this year, which of course is at CorbettReport.com media 
all three parts, the full transcript, downloads, all of it available 100% for free, or you can purchase the DVD copy, which includes not only part one, part two, part three, but also a 30-minute preview, sneak preview, of my six-hour-long media online course, which is a three-part, six-hour lecture series on the birth of mass media, its development, where it's going in the future, all of these issues that um, I'm exploring in the Media Matrix documentary in much more detail. All of that, of course, also available at newworldnextweek.com. The links will be in the documentation list for today's flashback episode at flashback-media-kills. Once again, that's a lot of information to take in at once, but I hope you will be here with me as I continue to explore these incredibly important topics in the future. That's going to do it for today. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Looking forward to talking to you again in the very near future.